0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, a new Defense Department report calls China the most consequential and systemic challenge to U.S. national security. But one expert says some parts of the report go too far. Then there are over 150 potentially active volcanoes in the U.S., Researchers with the U.S. Geological Survey are working every day to monitor them so that we can better understand when they might erupt and the potential hazards. And cyber attacks on critical infrastructure are one of the biggest threats to the country, but there's still a disconnect between private companies and the federal government. We discuss what can be done to close the gap and better protect Americans. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is government matters with mimi Gerges.
1: this is government matters the show that delivers insights on federal government programs people and operations i'm mimi Gergis. the the pentagon just released its annual report on chinese military power and the threat it poses to the u.s michael ohanlon is a senior fellow and director of research at the brookings institution michael welcome to the program
2: nice to be here thanks for having me
1: so you write in a recent piece uh, about the report that quote we are tending towards overhyping the chinese threat what do you mean
2: well i think china is our most consequential strategic competitor that's a phrase that's sometimes employed in recent documents like the national security strategy the national defense strategy that also came out this fall talks about china as the pacing challenge i agree with all that China certainly has the scientific and technological and industrial base and the size of a military budget that makes it the number one challenge for us and there are some goals that are incompatible and therefore in their foreign policy and ours, especially over Taiwan, South China Sea. However, I don't know that China's trying to upside down turn over the world order the way that Vladimir Putin is right now. They're not using lethal military force as a rule, although there have been a couple of exceptions that are troubling. Uh, and to my mind, Uh, this is a rising power that is behaving sort of like a rising power and we're gonna have to accept that that's gonna pose some challenges to us but not overreact one specific example of overreacting not so much in this report but in previous documents and statements we're calling China guilty of genocide in the Xinjiang province where the Uyghur population has been oppressed and I think China is committing human rights violations on a large scale there it's not genocide it's not killing hundreds of thousands of people. Our minds know what that term means. And yet official documents are starting to use that kind of term. We just got to be careful and a little bit calm in how we talk about the China threat.
1: So the the Pentagon report says that China has the intent and the capacity to reshape the international order. You disagree with that?
2: Yeah, I do. I, I don't quite go with that framing. I think China wants to have greater influence on the global order, Uh, And I think, for example, they they would prefer not to have our Navy ships so close to their shores and they don't quite agree with our interpretation of the law of the sea. I'm not saying they're right, but I am saying that's a specific thing they want to change. They want to have more influence at the UN. Do they always do it in a, you know, collegial way? No, they're pushy and, you know, that's troubling, but they're still working within the UN system. Do they want to have a little greater influence in shaping the border with India? And that led to a tragic loss of life a couple of years ago. Yes, they're trying to push for that change, but are they trying to absorb entire countries the way Vladimir Putin is or has with Ukraine? No, so the the problems are specific, they're serious, but they are not of a nature that suggests China wants to completely overturn the global order.
1: China has the largest navy in the world at this point by ship count. Do you see that as an important metric?
2: Yes, but it's the only one we tend to use when it's only one. And in some calculations that former Deputy Secretary of State Jim Steinberg and I did in our book eight years ago, we pointed out that at that time, U.S. Navy aggregate tonnage for all of our ships was three times what China had. Even today, it's still twice what China has. In other words, we build bigger ships. And by the way, they're also better. So we have size, we have qualitative advantages. Yes, China has more actual vessels, and China's catching up. And by the way, none of these metrics is conclusive by itself. And there are a lot of areas of Chinese improved capability that I am worried about. Their anti-ship ballistic missiles, their precise, accurate cruise missiles, and now some of their quieter submarines. So we have to keep our eye on the Chinese Navy but why do we always use the one metric designed to make them look stronger than we are? I'm not, I think we could almost talk ourselves into a feeling of inferiority if we're not careful, but we could also convey the sense of an out of control Chinese arms race behavior, which is really not consistent with the facts.
1: Well, speaking of arms race, let's talk about nuclear weapons. What do we know about their intention to expand their nuclear forces?
2: Okay, first of all, let's remember we have 5,000. We think they have 400. Historically, they've been in the 200 to 300 range of total nuclear warheads.
1: Well, you only need one to take out a city. And you
2: only need one. So, you know, the fact that there are now nine nuclear powers on Earth, that's a lot less than John Kennedy predicted uh, 60 years ago, but it's still enough to be concerning. And certainly, the North Korean nuclear arsenal worries me. But China has 400. They seem to be ramping up. They're building more silos where they could put long-range ICBMs. And other behavior suggests they're expanding that force to perhaps 1,000 warheads maybe up to 1,500 by 2035. That's what the Pentagon report says. I'm grateful for that information. There's a lot of good information in the report. I'm not trying to, you know, somehow throw a criticism over the whole thing. However, uh, even if they went up to 1,500, it would take them more than a decade, we think. And they'd still only have 30% of our total. So that's concerning. That's worse for us than the previous situation but it doesn't suggest that they want to overturn the world order.
1: But the American nuclear triad is aging yes. and in desperate need of modernization. So is that an issue
2: here? Well, it's an issue in the sense we've got to keep at it. We are keeping after it. We are modernizing and, most importantly, making safe that nuclear arsenal. For example, we're replacing our submarine fleet, and it's going to take a while. We've got to stay on schedule, not because we need better nuclear weapons, but we need a safe, survivable ballistic missile submarine force. And the current force is starting to show the wear and tear of being underwater for so many years, where there's pressure on the hull. So there are other kinds of things like that. As you know, just recently, the B-21 bomber was unveiled. We have to keep modernizing the air-breathing part of the nuclear triad. And the good news about that is you can use it in conventional conflict. It's not just for a war that you hope and expect never to fight so yes i want to keep after most of the nuclear modernization agenda 1.3 trillion dollars worth but it's important and i support that
1: Uh, michael obviously the united states can project power globally is china at that point can they project power can they have influence globally or is it just in the pacific
2: well they can have influence with their economy globally and they're doing a pretty impressive job of that and sometimes that's a challenge to us sometimes it's a fair competition depends on the situation With their navy, they're starting to try to develop some presence up towards the Indian Ocean, Persian Gulf, Djibouti, et cetera, and they have occasional forays elsewhere. But in terms of global positioning and posture, we are still far and away the the superpower. But they are trying to change that. Again, I don't like that as an American strategist, but I'm not that surprised by it. We sort of showed the way of how a superpower behaves in the 21st century, and if China wants to catch up a little, We don't necessarily have to view that as a hostile act. It's concerning. It's competitive. It may not be aggressive or hostile.
1: Really quickly, uh, Michael, is is the issue that you have with the Pentagon's report more semantics, how they're naming things, or is it with respect to policy?
2: That's a good question. You know, I don't really object to most of what we're doing with our Navy in the Western Pacific. I do support the freedom of navigation exercises we do or the patrols that China tries to resist. I think we're right to want to... You know, insist on that access. I'd like to see us help Taiwan protect itself, and if necessary, perhaps come to Taiwan's aid in a crisis with our military. So I don't really object on those grounds. But there are some semantic issues that could lead us in a dangerous direction. We could, for example, overhype a crisis and overreact if we've convinced ourselves that China's trying to overturn the world order. So the semantics matter. All right, Michael, thanks so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Coming up next, the U.S. Geological Survey is monitoring over 150 volcanoes across the country. A researcher joins us to discuss the latest eruption. There are 161 potentially active volcanoes across the country. The latest to erupt is Mauna Loa on Hawaii's Big Island. Andrea Ellis is a U.S. Geological Survey geophysicist at Hawaiian Volcano Observatory and one of the scientists closely watching the eruption. Andrea, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks so much. Hello.
1: Hawaii gets a lot of attention for its eruptions, but it's not actually where most of the volcanoes in the U.S. are located.
3: Where are they? Yeah, it's a great question we have a lot of earthquakes along the western coast so in california washington oregon and alaska and then yellowstone
1: so how does the usgs monitor these uh, potentially active volcanoes and and what types of tools do you use
3: that's a really great question as well there's so many tools that we use to monitor active volcanoes within the united states Um, and here in hawaii and other volcanoes we have for the geophysical instrumentation our volcanoes are well instrumented with, um, tilt meters, which is a form of deformation tools, GPS uh, seismic, which uh, really tells us about earthquakes and how the earth is, uh, vibrating. We have, um, gas sensors, which is, uh, measuring CO2 or carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide emission rates. We use satellite imagery. We have uh, live webcams that are collecting data for us almost continuously in times of quiescence, uh, where there's no activity unrest and then current eruptions.
1: And you you talked about some of the the changes that you look for. What are the signs that an eruption could be imminent?
3: Uh, that's what we've been looking at for the last several months uh, before the onset of this current eruption at Mauna Loa, which just occurred started on November twenty seventh, a little over a week ago. Um, so we really look, We were in a state of um, heightened unrest. So we were looking, you know, the, these GPS um, instruments and tilt meters are we're seeing the volcano inflate. And so um, just like if you have a balloon under a pile of sand and it's inflate, you blow it up, it, you know, the Earth uh, increases. We also have increased seismicity, lots of small earthquakes. And then we were really looking for the, for an imminent eruption to happen, um, those seismic signals to get closer to the surface. Usually, they're at depth below this Earth's surface. And then really, um, uh, there's something called tremor, which is a very slight vibration and looks very, a very specific seismic signal, which is indicating uh, that magma reaching the Earth's surface and all those small bubbles from magma and then a really sharp increase in tilt meters, which measure how the flanks of a volcano deform as well as very uh, distinct even more increases in the surface deformation.
1: You know, a lot of people think of lava when they think of volcanic uh, eruptions, but what are some of the other potential hazards that the USGS looks out for
3: and monitors? Yes, of course. Lava is one of the most exciting parts of volcanoes and what we think of. Um, And then the other big part, uh, at least for Hawaiian volcanoes, is VOG. So VOG is, um, you know, an air quality metric, and it's really the volcanic gases, sulfur dioxide and carbon dioxide and ash are really other um, big hazards for, for residents.
1: And how does the USGS work with local governments to make sure at-risk communities stay safe?
3: Yeah, uh, so the United States Geological Survey is really focused on science and observations and then informing our stakeholders and agencies and local governments about those risks to, to populations. Um, and then so we work closely with here at Hawaii, uh, the Hawaiian, Hawaii County Civil Defense um agency is someone that we're very closely involved with high emo just the Hawaii emergency management agency FEMA the federal emergency management agency and we actually have uh have spun up an um emergency operations center and we all we are staffed there 24 7 closely informing their those decisions for road closures um not at this time but if there was potential for evacuation those folks would be the uh, making those decisions and going
1: back, Andrea, to Mauna Loa on uh, Hawaii Island, as you said, it started erupting on November 27th. When did you begin to see signs that the volcano may be close to erupting?
3: Yeah, so we've been monitoring uh, Mauna Loa very closely for decades. The last eruption was in uh, 38 years ago in 1984, so this is a very exciting time. Um, and so we really saw the most unrest probably the, in July, this July, July 2020, and in September, really started seeing very distinct signs um, that uh, an eruption was coming. But it wasn't until the night of um, November 27th, you know, just about an hour before the eruption or the lava reached the surface that we uh, saw in our geophysics se- signals, the seismicity went up and then the tilt meters really have a very distinct signal when um, lava gets very close to the surface. And that's when we saw it. And how long do you expect it to last? That's the million dollar question at the moment. Um, historically, uh, these eruptions can last days to weeks or to years, so we really don't know at this time. At the, currently, uh, the effusion rate or the rate at which lava is coming out um, is very consistent for the last couple of days. So, you know, we're just watching and seeing, and that's really the exciting part of this eruption.
1: What other volcanoes are on your radar at this point? Any Anything that you're expecting to, to happen in the near future?
3: Uh, not, not nothing new. But what uh, you know, that folks forget is Hawaii. The island of Hawaii has two currently active volcanoes. Our, our other volcano, Kilauea, um, has been erupting since uh, 2020. And so this current, so we have on island we have two active volcanoes, uh, Kilauea and Mauna Loa, and it's a very exciting time.
1: All right. Well, Andrea, I want to thank you so much for joining us from Hawaii. I know it's uh, not a good time over there, but uh, good luck with the the volcano.
3: Yeah, pleasure, thanks so much.
1: If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post.
0: The following segment is sponsored by Accenture Federal Services. With a keystroke,
2: Our adversaries can disrupt power or water to a small city, mine troves of Americans' personal data, or steal intellectual property.
1: That was Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas giving a speech at the Center for Strategic and International Studies on December 5th. A big focus of the administration is protecting critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. Rick Driggers is a former executive at CISA. Rick, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, when it comes to protecting critical infrastructure, what would you say is lacking in the federal response?
4: Well, I think on on the day, you know, day to day, I think that the government has done a tremendous, a a lot of work over the past decade, decade and a half. Um, Clearly, there there could be more coordination across the various different departments and agencies that have a critical infrastructure role and responsibility. Uh, you've got these 16 sectorist management agencies. Um, you know, eight of those are in the uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. There's another couple that are actually in the Department of Homeland Security. And then you've got the Department of Defense. You've got he- Health and Human Services. You've got the Department of Energy. So making sure that there's a unified coordinated effort whenever you want to uh, actually put out guidance uh, to the um, to the public sector and i think that in the past probably like four or five years i think that the uh, the government's done a, a tremendous job uh, in terms of, of making sure that there's a much more unified and coordinated approach you see guidance coming out of the Cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency that is um that is coordinated very well with fbi it's coordinated very well with the national security agency and other departments and agencies like the department of energy and they're tri-sealed and so that that guidance is uh
1: most critical infrastructure is owned by private companies Correct. and operated by private companies. What do you think the federal government's role should be in regulating and mandating its protection?
4: Yeah, so there's, there's a couple, uh, you know, regulatory authorities that, that exist uh, with regards to security. Of course, most of the regulatory authorities are around safety and around, uh, around environment. Um, you know, it's a, um, I think, some light touch. Regulation is probably required. We haven't gotten the quite the um, made made quite the impact uh, in terms of of really the private sector covering down on their critical particularly their cybersecurity risks. Um, They need to certainly do more. um, But I think some light touch regulation is probably required.
1: You've said that uh, previously that there's a cultural divide between people running the IT networks, yep. which are you know, the internal, and the operations networks. Explain the difference between those two, and, and what's the root of that cultural divide?
4: Sure, so when everybody thinks about technology, they, they think about the traditional information uh, technology like computers and laptops, and, and those networked uh, equipment that really protects data right and then you've got the operational technology which are really those control systems that um that impact the physical environment and so um, normally the operational technology environment is you know doesn't have a whole lot of visibility on the uh chief information officer side of the house and so what what i think we are trying to do at least people that, that do my type of work in operational technology is bring those two uh domains together not integrated, but in alignment, right? And so there's a lot of talk about IT, OT, convergence, um, and I like to talk about alignment, alignment on security outcomes, security goals. And you're gonna do that differently in IT than you do in OT. OT is gonna take longer to do, um, it's gonna be harder, um, and you've gotta be a lot more patient with regards to how you set up your security um, apparatus and the operational what's technology. What's the
1: solution world. though of bridging that gap? How do you bring those two together? How do you align as you say?
4: Well, I think you align by um, by making sure that at least on the IT side of the house that you're taking into into consideration the concerns that they have predominantly on, on operational technology. And that is safety, uh, reliability, and availability of, of operations, right? Those critical operations, because that's how the private sector makes money, by producing things and um, or or materials. And so I think that you've got to get these teams together to understand uh, basically what type of security outcomes, what type of security goals they could all reach and move forward together with.
1: And I can't let you go until I ask you about jobs because there are a lot of cybersecurity jobs in this country that are vacant. I've heard 700,000 was the latest I heard. What impact is that having and, and what's the solution?
4: Yeah, well, What's the solution? (laughs) I wish I knew the solution. I think that, um, look, I I, I referred to this as a national security risk when I was in the government. I I still think it is today. Um, I think we need a much more coordinated, unified approach. Um, There is nobody in the federal government that is in charge. Of building uh, a workforce for America Um, and everybody's kind of doing their own thing you've got all of these programs um, to build out a workforce to be able to recruit from not only just colleges but out of high school to give folks a job Um, you know I don't know exactly what the answer is but I think that there definitely needs to be more more uh, coordination across the federal government and quite frankly there's a lot of nonprofits that are doing this work as well so there could be a lot of um, I think it takes the private sector to kind of to stand up uh, with the government and kind of take the lead on this.
1: All right, Rick, thanks very much for coming in the program.
4: Thank you. The previous
0: segment was sponsored by Accenture Federal Services.
1: That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
5: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, Uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and satellite, of course.
1: Well, tell me about the HughesNet gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service
5: it is it is it's a very exciting service we launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it gen 4, which was known as gen 4 that are called high throughput satellites and these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government.
1: Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning.
5: We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of Uh, understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it